to Books and Beyond with your host, Alison. Join us for half an hour of information, entertainment, reading recommendations and beyond. Brought to you by Auckland Libraries. I know this girl and she works in a library. No my hide and I kia ora. Welcome to Books and Beyond. This is your host Alison and today I'm joined in the studio by Karen. Kia ora Karen. Kia ora Alison, happy new year. Happy new year to you too. Look, thanks for tuning in everyone. Our show today is a continuation of the new year's resolution theme because after all it is still January. And um, Karen and I have been thinking of how we would both like to be this year and who we would most like to emulate. So we thought we would take some inspiration from some of our favourite books. And we're going to start with Little Women. Hmm, I wonder why. Is it possibly because we've both just been to see the movie? <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> the new movie. The new movie. Um, now, as kids, um, many of us had to play that game, um, which daughter do you see yourselves as? So um, I know who I saw myself as as a kid but you know I loved actually loved the whole of the March family and I still do they were abolitionists who were committed to social change and they valued virtue over wealth I like that and they practiced radical kindness way before it became fashionable and had its own hashtag I'm clearly very unfashionable Alison because I did not even know that it had its own hashtag oh, right it does now <laughs> yeah but when I was growing up I really wanted to be like Joe March um, but I probably didn't have the fiery temper that she displayed but I always loved her tomboy aspect I can see that. Yeah, Yeah, go figure. (laughs) Now, in my family, unfortunately, we didn't actually all get to choose. So we did have three sisters in the family. Um, A marriage made in heaven with the whom, which March family are you? But my oldest sister, who did have a very fiery temper, insisted on choosing the parts. And she got to be Joe. And and she insisted that I be Amy. And um, I didn't actually particularly want to be Amy. But I don't remember it as traumatic. Um, It might have been if I'd already seen this version because I did think that the unlikability of Amy was particularly stressed in this version. Mm. Yeah, um, because this is the seventh adaptation, I I do believe. But, you know, when I was growing up, um, my brother never really wanted to play this game with me. He didn't want to choose which character he'd like to be. But um, he could have been Laurie. Oh, yeah, he could have, absolutely, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, um, yeah, now, as for the the film um, itself, well, you were saying that you were a little bit annoyed with it, um, weren't you, you know, about the feminist message? Well, <laughs> yes, that's it. That, that, um, I hope nobody takes that badly. You pop that right out in the oh, first sentence in such a... That was a very, um, yeah, it's, it's a bit more complicated than that. So, um, yeah, I loved the film. I actually really loved it. I really enjoyed seeing it. And it was very, it was interesting. It was a very womanly film, not in a negative way of womanly, but in that way of it being warm and loving and beautiful. Um, not womanly like, you know, you have to cook dinner every night. But I was a little annoyed the way, as you said, I it really hit us over the head with the feminist message. 
sort of implying that the story in itself was not enough for us to glean the feminist message that Alcott was including in her book. And I remember reading in the um, reviews of the movie when it came out that uh, Patti Smith was quoted as saying that, of course, it was one of her favorite books and she was growing up. And she was a Joe when she played, oh. um, you know, which March sister are you? Yeah, of course. And she called it uh, a maverick girl. She said that Joe was there for the maverick girls like myself um, and talked about tossing her cropped hair and winking. Didn't Joe whistle? I'm sure that... Yes, isn't there a scene... Went, yes. It wasn't in the movie where Joe also whistles, whistles and Meg gets angry at her for whistling. So I think, though, that I'm, I'm, I'm a bit sad that the movie... I'm, I'm sad. I'm regretful that the movie didn't think that people could appreciate those things on their own without changing the story so radically as for instance to say that joe opened a school for girls joe didn't she opened a school for boys mm-hmm. there nobody would have sent their daughter to a school for girls except of course meg her sister mother of daisy who in fact was the only girl in joe's school for boys yeah yeah i agree and it's unfortunate because i do think also that it was just a little bit heavy-handed like that but you know this is like so much that comes out of Hollywood um and I really wish wish they wouldn't do that to us do you know one of as an aside one of my favorite tv series at the moment is Madam Secretary but instead of letting the powerful scenes just sort of sit with the viewer it's like they use a, a metaphorical building site tool like a shovel and they dump the meaning all over you um but you know in in the case of Little Women, I was prepared to overlook this sort of clumsiness and just really love the film. Well, it sounds like speaking about a relationship, <laughs> yeah, actually, <laughs> which, is, which in effect yeah. is what we all have with Little Women. Uh, we, you and I have and many mm. women do. Um, I did like, I have to say, the emphasis on Marmy's frustration and anger because I identified a lot with that in my growing up, realizing what a... Um, uh, the bad spin of the dice my mother had had compared to me. Mm. <laughs> you know, what what we realized about our mothers as we were growing up, about how many constraints had been on them. And um, I think I realized, when I realized my mother had always wanted to be a doctor, but she studied business in school. You know? Yeah. Um, and, I, and I really, really liked the nonlinear timeline and the metafiction. So in particular, um, and this was a, a, a great inspiration um, on the part of Greta Gerwig, was the metafiction where Joe is bringing out her novel she's at the publishers and the publisher says and she has to end it with the heroine getting married even though she Louisa May Alcott never got married wasn't married never got married and so then they show us you know the happy love scene totally invented with Frederick and I don't think any other movie version of Little Women, I haven't seen all seven, um, had showed us this fact that the author of the book was a spinster. Yeah that's that's right um, I think my favorite Joe is still, I have to say, though, Catherine Hepburn. Oh, um, yes. Talk about being a spinster. Um, more the way I imagined, or more spinster-like, with the high cheekbones and the red hair and the sharp tongue. And um, Saoirse, I thought, had a little bit of the Botticelli goddess about her. What did, what did you think about the casting? Yeah, I, you know, I loved Saoirse in this role because I think she's really something yeah, as, oh, an, absolutely. as an actor. Very fine actor, yes. Yeah, and I really loved... Laura Dern as um, the character Marmy. I thought she was just gorgeous in that. But really, Catherine Hepburn is always going to be one of my idols. And rightly so. Yeah. Um, I also, the, interestingly, um, never imagined Laurie as being kind of dopey the way that Timothy Chalamet played him. Mm. I actually thought when I saw the poster, um, I hope I, I, you're going to die when you hear this. 
<laughs> I wish the audience could see your face. When I first saw the poster, when the movie just came out, and I knew nothing about the casting. I knew nothing about it except it was a new little women movie. They had Saoirse to one side, large, full figure, and then four faces down the side. And it was Laurie and the three other sisters. And I looked at the poster and I said, oh my God, this really is a new little woman. They've made it, one of the little women is transgender. I thought... <laughs> I thought Sersha was the mother, and those were the four oh, right. girls, and one of them was Timothy Chalamet. That would have been just awesome, wouldn't it? So, I mean, maybe that's what we have to look forward to. In the, the eighth yes, version the of eighth, Little Women. Um, iteration of it. Yeah. Well, and then other thoughts about Little Women. I know that it's been criticised um, by some people for being so white. You know, that sort of unbearable whiteness of being. But I'd really push back on that theory somewhat because I think it's important that we remember that the book isn't, it's not presented as being the only feminist worldview or indeed the the most important one. And it's describing the worldview of a, a white family in Massachusetts during the Civil War who lived in genteel poverty and worked to to right injustice and be kind to others. So I don't think that Louisa May Alcott was trying to speak for all women as a universal voice. What do you you think, Karen? Well, I think it's autofiction, and I don't think that Alcott did mean it to be a universal story. It's not. It's her story. And inserting black characters now into the movie would not make it universal. That makes it what we call representational. Mm. Um, they so I thought it was great the producers included the black women among the women you remember when Marmy's helping the soldiers make their way back home yes. and there's a freed black woman working among them um, I think well, trying to think what more they could do um, you know there was a non-linear timeline but I don't think they could have had Amy in Paris <laughs> Meeting, uh, meeting up. Oh, I was going to say meeting a black man in Paris, but I was thinking she could have had her possibly just squeeze in a meeting with a very old Alexander Dumas, who <laughs> was the grandson of a black servant. Or she could have squeezed in a meeting of a really, really, really young James Baldwin. Oh, yeah, perhaps. <laughs> yes. I think the real problem of today is that a film about a white person gets touted as a universal story, yeah. and the film of Beloved or The Color Purple does not. And this is the problem. None of these are universal stories if you're going by plot. But if you're going by themes, love, loss, growing up, sorrow, then they all are equally. Yeah, the, I think you've, you've nailed it there, to use a, a building site metaphor. Um, <laughs> now, yeah, like, I wondered if the tool you were going to talk about was going to be a hammer. Yeah, yeah, or that's a, right. I thought it was going to be a hammer and then it was a shovel. <laughs> <laughs> but look, let's move on to some of our other favourite characters. And if we um, travel from the northeast uh, down to the southern states of America... Um, I loved the book Fried Green Tomatoes at the Whistle Stop Cafe. And so I really want to be headstrong and brave like Edgy Threadgood. I just loved her tomboyishness. Gee, that's a difficult word to say. But that tomboy aspect, um, oh, it's also a recurring theme for me, isn't it, Karen? Um, go figure. But, you know, I loved Edgy's ability to feel joy at you know, the simplest of activities like skimming stones and puddles. And I loved how she'd get her clothes really dirty and how she refused to wear a, a pretty dress to a family wedding. And there was a great family drama over that. And um, I admired her when she established the Whistle Stop Cafe with her friend Ruth. And then I cheered when she stood up to the 
hateful members of the Ku Klux Klan. And then when she took such a brave stand to protect Ruth from family violence. And I know that she carried such immense grief with her, but I, I felt I was carrying that grief along with the character. Also, um, absolutely loved the film when I saw it in 1991. And it was somewhat of a, a coming-of-age film for, for the characters and, and for myself, I think. Well, it sounds like... Um, uh, who's the author? Uh, uh, Fanny Flagg. Oh, Fanny Flagg, yes, of course. Gosh, I, I was yeah. thinking Fanny, another Fanny yeah. that was a political figure. So, um, yeah, the um, you know, it's interesting because a lot of things with the, with the what March sister are you, in real life you've got a bit of one March sister and a bit of the other, don't you? Most yeah, people. yeah. And, um, and I think it's, it was interesting when you said skimming stones because that was the one scene in the movie of Little Women where we saw Meg do something brawny, which oh, was, yes. remember she skims the yes. stone and she does it very well. Can't remember if they have her actually doing it better than her bow. Mm-hmm. But anyway, she skims the stone. So um, anyway, who was in the movie? Speaking of movies, oh, um, Mary Stuart Masterton was one of the, the characters. Lots of well-known characters. Um, another well-known actresses. Uh, oh, sorry, yes, well-known right. actors. Isn't <laughs> yes, actresses. Yes, it's allowed. It, it uh, had a good good cast. Yeah, I really have to read the I'll have to read the book before I see the movie. Um, maybe while I'm waiting for my copy of Where the Crawdads Sing. I feel like they must be kin. Um, these two books. So I know Crawdads has a mystery and a coming of age, a romance. Is there a murder mystery and fried yes. green tomatoes? Oh, there yes, is actually. I forgot to mention that and. Um, yeah, a big murder mystery. Yeah, so quite similar. Do you know, I must warn you, though, that um, f- for you, I think you might find fried green tomatoes a little bit on the folksy side. So I think you'd need to be prepared for that. <laughs> no, you look <laughs> horrified. <laughs> well, I don't believe I look Your like face. somebody who would snob a book because it's on the folksy side. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't mean to. I must project a sort of a highbrow thing here. Yeah. So um, I want to put out there, I'm ready for anything, at least in reading. And um, I think that's actually the reason why uh, the first character I chose when you said, let's pick characters that we admire uh, or want to be like or emulate, uh, was the first one that came to my mind was Logan Mount Stewart in William Boyd's book, Any Human Heart. In the line, my line for this is, I want to continue to be a romantic all my life, even if a doomed romantic. Mm. Not sure about if a folksy romantic. But <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Logan Monster was not folksy. He was actually the son of a um, of an upper class. Uh, who was the who? Upper class father, and his mother was from Uruguay. But what was she? She was something else. She was not upper class, or maybe she was, but not in England. Anyway, um, so I, I was trying to remember because his middle name, I think it's Gonzago. Logan. Mount Stewart, uh, Logan Gonzalo, Gonzago Mount Stewart, um, because in fact, so the book is the form of a journal, is written in the form of Logan Mount Stewart's journal, and then there are little connective pieces of narrative when you have to, when one journal breaks off and another one starts, and he's constantly, the narrator calls him LMS, continuing our DW, DFW, and the DWM, that's our tradition, isn't it? Our tradition. So when I was trying to remember the middle name i was thinking oh i should um should have a look 
But I actually was too busy trying looking at another thing, which I thought was really shocking, which was that um, when I did Google the name to see if it was Gonzago, which I still don't know, because I was carried away by a newspaper story that came up in the Daily Mail about a British game show host who was applying for resource consent. And he wanted to use a fake name and he chose Logan Mount Stewart for assuming that nobody in his city council would have read William Boyd. And uh, the journalist in the Daily Mail described him, so not the game game show host, but Logan Mount Stewart, as a boozy love cheat. That's a great um, headline, isn't it, for the, the Daily Mail? It may be a perfect headline for the Daily Mail, but it is not what Logan Mount Stewart is. Logan Mount Stewart is not a boozy love cheat. He's a bit boozy, but he's not a love cheat. And what is a love cheat? Anyway, if you mm. took love cheats out of <laughs> out of literature, what would you have left? We'd have nothing to read. 25% of the books. Yes. Um, so he falls in love with someone who is not the woman he is married with, to. And as often in England of those days, if you were upper class and you got married, it was to an affable woman who had the right amount of independent fortune. Am I correct? Yes. <laughs> not necessarily the love of your life. And um, so back to Daily Mail, I would like to quote to the Daily Mail the epigraph of the book, which is where the title comes from. It's a line from Henry James, and it is, never say you know the last word about any human heart. Gee, isn't that good advice? Yeah, I advice think it's for life. It's absolutely, mm-hmm. the book is full of good advice. And... I was trying to think, what was the other? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was going to say that um, an example of being ready to take anything that life throws at you, which is the sort of the credo of um, Logan Mount Stewart, LGS, LGM, excuse me. Did I, did I say LMS? LGS before? L- L- no, LGM, L-G-M. Logan L-G-M. Gonzago Mount Stewart, um, is that he, um, so to show how he takes everything that life throws at him with humor and dignity, um, when he is so poor that he's reduced to selling revolutionary newspapers in London and living on dog meat, he experiments and he learns, he finds just the right brand that if you add a pinch of curry, it makes all the difference. I'll have to remember that if I ever have to eat dog food. Yes, yeah, that's right. I hope it doesn't happen. But Yeah, you never yeah. know because no. as um, Logan says, every life is both ordinary and extraordinary. Mm. And, you know, his thing is that the great love is what has made his life worth it. And you just don't give up. So he actually has a funny little part where he talks about um, people giving up. And he mentions that Evelyn Waugh and T.S. Eliot, supposedly, both gave up, um, could, you know, could no longer find the inspiration to write when it was when they had their teeth extracted and they were presented with a pair of snappers. Oh. And he said, <laughs> he said, maybe that's the fear that paralyzes aging authors that they might have lost their bite. Oh, dear. I have that fear as well. <laughs> Somehow. Oh, yes. <laughs> Are you serious? Way too young. Uh, Well, thank you. Um, Now, in contrast to the romantics among us, I've got a huge crush on a a cool, calm and collected and calculating hero from the Millennium series of books. Um, And I'm speaking of the the dragon tattoo 
trilogy. So I want to be brave and feisty and super intelligent like Lisbeth Salander. Um, do you know, I love how she breaks all the rules in order to do what is right. She's a survivor of immense trauma. but And she uses her intelligence and physical prowess to do good, um, to right wrongs and catch baddies. You know, she's a badass, I would say, as opposed to a, a bad boy. Um, she rides her motorbike like a demon and she has the martial arts skills of a master, someone with sort of an infinite degree black belt. I didn't know. Um, is martial arts something you do? Well, yes, yeah. Um, although I'm terrible at combat martial arts, I must admit, that's where I, I don't um, fit her profile. But I do Tai Chi. And, I um, think that counts as an ID point with Lisbeth. Yeah, well, I uh, have my black belt and we do do quite a bit of combat and self-defense, but that's the part I'm, I'm not good at. Um, but... Um, which is why you pick all the characters who are brave. Yes, the brave, <laughs> yeah, and the ones that are sort of kick-ass characters. Yeah, so now these have been made into films as well. The, the Millennium series. Yes, yeah. And, but there have been about four um, different Lisbeth Salanders, and I've liked all of them except um, Claire Foy, who the, who's the English actress who played, uh, I should say actor, played um, Lisbeth. And I... I really feel that she was hopelessly miscast in that. She was too gentle. But I hope that's not too negative. I was sitting here clapping silently at how brave you were. <laughs> yeah, very brave. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, so I've got a brave one for you. I mean, it's mine, but you can share mm. it with me. And it's Madeline. Oh, yes. In an old house in Paris that was covered with vines, lived 12 little girls in Two straight lines. That's right. Yeah. Yes. So Brave Madeline is the one that the other couplet did. Well, actually, not a couplet, two couplets. Um, she was not afraid of mice. She loved winter, snow, and ice. To the tigers in the zoo, Madeline just said, poo, poo. Oh, yes. You go, girl. Yeah. yeah. And vas-y, mon enfant. Oh, yeah. So, <laughs> but she was really, Madeline was really um, the start of my love affair with France. Like all characters you fall in love with. It's not just them. It's the setting. It's a, it's a million other things. The feeling. And um, that scene, there's a scene. So this is a picture book, a children's picture book uh, for anyone who doesn't know. And there's in his hand, it's drawn by the same man, Ludwig Bemelmans, who wrote mm. the picture book. And these beautiful drawings of Paris seen through the eyes of children. Well, mixed. You know, it's that wonderful way of illustrating children's books where you get the grown-up savoir faire, but you get what impresses the child the yeah. most. Um, and they, so you see, there's a scene when they're looking for the dog that the board of the orphanage has made them has kicked out of the orphanage their adopted dog and they go searching all night through the dog and there's scenes where they're walking through the gardens where there's a little boy buying a red balloon from the balloon mm. man and then through the cafe the, the existentialist cafes with bearded people sitting at them mm -hmm. and then at Père Lachaise Cemetery among the graves yeah and all the dogs and where people look like their dogs don't yes, they? yes yeah, that's, did you remember that too yeah, just a guy with a bulldog face sitting next to his bulldog and then and there's like a woman with, with a, a poodle or with, a, with a poodle exactly yeah yeah um and the hat i loved 
the the hats that schoolgirls wear. The the big yellow hats. Yeah. It's funny you should say that because I once saw on a Halloween costume website a thing saying you can be Madeline, just get yourself a yellow hat. And then they showed this woman wearing a big kind of nineteen seventies hippie floppy yellow hat, and um and a and a blue dress. And then she was wearing this slinky blue dress because of course people who go to Halloween parties don't want to really look like a kid. And yeah. I'm just going to put out there, don't do it. You know, she Madeline did not wear a slinky blue dress. She wore a blue cape like you do when you're in an orphanage, a navy yeah. blue cape. So it's, I think, good advice. Don't do that. Just don't do just, that. Yeah. Imitate the, imitate the character like we're doing in your yes, mind and in your actions, not by dressing up like <laughs> yeah, it's something wrong with that. Um, now, speaking of hats, um, I would really like to be like the cat in The Cat in the Hat because he's such a, a cheerful anarchist, actually. He's like a, the most fun uncle that you could ever possibly have. He pushes boundaries constantly, but ultimately he does keep the children safe. And I loved how he brought in that you know that super vacuum cleaning machine at the last minute and he has the house clean just as the mother walks in the door yeah every so, kid's dream isn't yeah. it yeah and you know i was thinking every teenager's dream if you've ever thrown a party when mum and dad didn't know um, so you need that machine but what i like about him he's really like the anti mary poppins That's true. That, that was that was cool that was why i liked him so much and I was thinking, you know, my nephews regard me as a pretty fun auntie, but I didn't, I'm going to need to push myself a bit to reach the, the fun heights of Mr. Cat in the Hat. <laughs> I, yeah. I see it. I think you can, I think you can strive for that one. Um, so I've got one more, one of my most admired and beloved characters, as you're saying, beloved of um, Cat in the Hat, is um, Charlotte Cavatica, Charlotte A. Cavatica. And this would be Charlotte the spider who oh, yes. spins charlotte's web um as wilbur refers to her a loyal and gifted friend and then the last lines of the book i've got i've got to say these out loud to salute to charlotte wilbur never forgot charlotte so charlotte's died wilbur goes back to live on the farm all these days he'll never be butchered because charlotte has saved him with her messages and her web and he says wilbur never forgot charlotte although he loved her children and grandchildren dearly none of the new spiders ever quite took her place in his heart she was in a class by herself it is not often that someone comes along who who is a true friend and a good writer. Charlotte was both. Oh, that's so uh, sad. That was where I threw oh, myself you... on the bed and sobbed yeah. when I read it. Oh, dear. Yes. Oh, I hate it when the, the animal dies. The, the animal dies is the whole cathartica. You know, yes. Charlotte, Charlotte Cavatica is also Charlotte cathartica. cathartica. Big sob after reading a great book. I think it's one of the most soul-reviving things you can have. Yeah. Um, Charlotte is mythic, to use the modern word, oh, which at yes. the time was not used for this kind of thing. Charlotte was mythic. Yeah, well, look, speaking of, of myth, um, I've got a New Zealand character that I want to be like this year and for the rest of my life. I want to be a brave and a strong yet gentle leader like Pikea in The Whale Rider. So Pikea uh, challenges tradition and embraces the past in order to find that strength to lead her people forward. And she has such sadness in her life and it's really heartbreaking and yet she overcomes these really massive obstacles to to lead and ultimately save her people do you know i'll never forget the scene in in the movie when where pikey is giving 
that speech at her school and it's about her ancestor, Paikia. And she dedicates the speech to her koro and she speaks of her sense of failure as a leader. So in the film, Keisha Castle-Hughes gave such a strong performance here and I remember sobbing in the movie when I first saw this scene um, just just like the ending of Charlotte's Web actually Oh yeah, I remember sobbing too and I, as I recall when I saw it in the theatre which was actually in California in the movie theatre everybody was sobbing Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure if Californians just sob more <laughs> Yeah, oh, I, it's a universally sob-inducing scene, isn't it? I watched it on YouTube again last night just that clip and it it still brings brings big tears to my eyes and i can really see why she was nominated for an academy award for this role just such a powerful actor well yeah. i can use that congratulations myself i totally agree keisha was absolutely fantastic in the movie but um i'm also going to say when you said so powerful because i remembered one more character and i can put it in that takes us back to the northeast of the united ah, states full circle. So, yeah exactly um which is olive kitteridge so olive kitteridge fans uh these are two books by elizabeth stroud um will know that there is a brand new olive kitteridge book came out last year and and um, Olive Kitteridge is a, I'm thinking, strong, severe, but above all, I think, highly original character. Um, my love with Olive Kitteridge is a bit of a flirtation, so she do, does things that I don't dare do. <laughs> and she admits openly to hating the same kinds of things that I hate. <laughs> <laughs> encouraging me to be allowed to enjoy hating them. So, for instance, people trying to get you to collude in some activity that you don't actually want to collude in or or just annoying, um, uh, useless things that you want things to have a purpose and that you don't have to anymore because you're grown up. And what you really hate is when they don't acknowledge that you're grown up. And the great thing about Olive is that this is the thing. She prizes... Uh, truth and honesty, which I say, why? What's the point of growing up? You have to put up with a lot of things and yeah. growing old. But um, if you don't earn the right to have the truth and be honest, you know, this is the big prize that you get. That, yeah. um, there is, isn't there some book where they talk about that? But isn't it? That's one of the, the benefits of, of being a grown up, isn't it? Yeah. It's like, yay. Um, so look, oh, that's wonderful. I love Olive. I want to be her as well. So look, just a reminder that um, the books mentioned today are. Are listed on our show notes, um, which you'll you'll find through our websites. Um, so look, until next time, happy reading, Haerera, and Kakiteano. Haerera, Alison, and to all our listeners. This program was brought to you by Auckland Libraries. Find us online at aucklandlibraries.govt.nz and catch the program next Sunday at nine thirty-five pm on one hundred four point six FM or anytime online at planetaudio.org.nz slash books and beyond. Every day, every day, every day, every day.